You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. We have brought in Tony Ranke. Uh, Tony serves as a uh, senior teacher at Desiring God. He also is the host of the Ask Pastor John podcast, really popular, helpful podcast. And uh, Tony has thought deeply about these issues, uh, issues around technology. And you can see that in his latest three books that he's written. Uh, His latest is God, Technology, and the Christian Life. The one before that is Competing Spectacles. And the one before that, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. Right Now, we're giving that book out tonight uh, just as a way to help and to to be helpful to you. So Tony lives in the Phoenix area with his uh, precious family, wife, and three kids, and he is coming here this weekend to serve us. So could we give a round of applause to Tony? Uh, It's a joy to be here with you um, this morning. Those of you who listen to the podcast are going to have to acclimate. You're hearing an old friend, but you're looking at a stranger. It's a very odd thing. I know I've, I've met a number of people on the road who listen to the podcast uh, it's a joy to be here. It's a joy to uh, look at God's Word with you this morning, and we're going to start uh, by looking at just a summary of some of the studies that we've seen uh, when it comes to social media and smartphone overuse. Over the past several years, I've read a small mountain of books and studies <clears throat> on the effects of smartphone overuse and excessive social media uh, on the lives of teenagers. Teenagers are kind of the guinea pig of this generation, so there's more studies on them than anybody else. We know it's a problem beyond teenagers, but we're told that teenagers are more susceptible to cyberbullying and harassment uh, from their peers 24-7, 365. It's just a reality that they live with 24-7, 365. Their peers can see them all the time, and they can see their peers all the time, and that creates for incredible stress and FOMO and uh, comparison culture that they just cannot escape. That and other factors have led to upticks in teen anxiety and depression, uh, particularly among, among girls, especially in young women. Constant access to peers fails to make teens happier. That's become clear. It feeds comparison and FOMO. Attention spans can only be held for a few moments by only what is immediately entertaining. Uh, It's increasingly impossible for teenagers to read and to engage with lengthy texts, which makes school difficult and makes school difficult for students and for teachers, right? In homes where boundaries are not set for teenagers, they can be on their phones long into the the night in their bedrooms, uh, a blue light disrupting natural sleep cycles. Lost sleep means more fatigue. More fatigue means less productivity, less healthy lifestyles, and more mental fog in the day ahead. Screens also segregate all of us now, Um, not just teens, but moms and dads too. We all get uh, fed into content streams of people who are just like us, who think like us, who are like us. Teens live in apps where their grandparents will never appear. There's a breakdown of family structures, uh, broader social structures break down as well. All relationships suffer in some way because of it. Face-to-face communication skills die. School and workplace productivity drops. On and on go the consequences. But you don't have to be a Christian to see all that. Atheists read these studies. Atheists make these studies. Netflix documentaries can be watched on just about everything I mentioned above. Our question this morning is is this one. As we face these social challenges ahead, how do we as Christians respond? What distinctly does the church have to offer this culture? And for that, we turn to Scripture. Tonight, we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, 
uh, one of my favorite sections in the Bible when it comes to technology. You'll find out why tonight, but you have to come, you have to come tonight to find out why. Uh, it's a foundational text on technology that we'll, we'll get to then. Specifically, where does technology come from? Can we actually pinpoint where iPads come from? Do they just materialize out of nowhere? Does Steve Jobs just conjure them? Or you know, where did they come from? Right? So we're going to look at that tonight. There's a lot of wrong answers, actually, in the church to that question, I fear. But that's for tonight. This morning, we're going to focus specifically on media, on mass media, social media, and smartphones. There's an added tension here for believers, uh, for, the, for the church. This is an age of faith, the age of faith. This is the age of the gospel, right? This is the age of the ear, right? And we live in a world that thinks that that's very weird. It is, it is bizarre because we live in the TikTok age. We live in the age of the image. We live in the age of video. We live in the age of digital spectacles. So what is a spectacle? Let's define this before we open our Bibles. A spectacle is a moment of time of varying length in which some collective gaze is focused and fixed on some event or image or video. Uh, a spectacle is something that captures human attention, right? It's an instant when our eyes and our brains focus on something. Uh, it can be a tragic and haunting. It can be war footage. Uh, in an outraged society like ours, guess what it normally is? <laughs> it's often controversies, right? The latest scandal in sports or entertainment or in politics. They can be propaganda. They can be anti-propaganda. Doom scrolling, or the scary news headline of the day on cable news. Spectacles take the form of protests and parades and riots, all framed for the camera, right? Spectacles can be a brilliant photograph, a creative animation, a sexualized advertisement for deodorant, a witty commercial for fast food. A new music video, spectacles can be mind-blowing digital landscapes in the latest game. A celebrated network TV show, a new binge-worthy season on Netflix, a blockbuster movie, a horror film, a prank, an athletic feat. All of those are spectacles. Spectacles spawn more spectacles. That's one of the things that they do. They spawn more spectacles. So the movie industry creates these CGI, incredible, immersive films, right? And then those films get celebrated. They get celebrated in award shows, which are a spectacle of their own. And what happens at an award show? You have a red carpet fashion show, right? So you have a fashion show leading to an award show celebrating the spectacle on the screen. Spectacles spawn new spectacles. And spectacle industries can come together and create a super spectacle. I live in Phoenix. We just saw the Super Bowl up close and personal. That's the mega event that I'm thinking of here. It's this one huge event in which you have the, the, the spectacle makers of the sports industry and the defense industry comes into play and the Hollywood movie industry comes into play and the television industry comes into play and the music industry comes into play. All these spectacle makers come together and create one gigantic spectacle feast that's four hours long, right? All the spectacle makers coming together in one place. And what makes all this something other than harmless fun is this. Every spectacle wants something from you. Every spectacle wants something from you. 
Every spectacle makes demands on us. Even the smallest video clip aims to provoke, provoke something in us in order to cause us to do something with it. New spectacles ask us for our time, for our attention, for our anger, for our lust, for our love, for our hate, for our money, and for our votes. Every picture, every video, every viral tweet brings before us needs, expectations, and desires. YouTubers will give you new spectacles in exchange for your views and your subscribes, right? Netflix want your, wants your most precious commodity, your time. Netflix intentionally wants you to sleep less. They, they've stated that several times. They want their users to sleep less because they want more of their time. Politicians want our votes. The gaming industry wants our in-game purchases. On and on it goes. Many of us know how this dynamic works from the inside because we're little spectacle makers of our own, right? We make our little spectacles online and social media, little spectacles we hope to grab some attention. That's why we do it, right? We want to be celebrated. We want to be hearted. We want to be liked, followed, shared, retweeted, right? We want some of the action. Attention is the currency of social power. Attention is the currency of social power. And the more plays or likes you give something, the more power it grows to influence others. In fact, the most viral things, right, are the things that you have to see, right? It's viral, you just gotta see it. It's become so powerful. So again, we're back to this question, what does the church offer the world here? And more importantly, how does God respond to this world of spectacles, because it would be very easy at this point to simply fall to a position that's anti-spectacle, right? Trash the TV, throw the smartphone in a lake, um, sledgehammer the Xbox, live a spectacle-free existence. But that's not exactly how God confronts this digital world. He does something altogether different, something very unexpected. He introduces a spectacle of his own. So rather than talk about screen limits or how many spectacles or too many spectacles, I want to narrow our focus this morning and ask, I think, the most fundamental question that we can ask today, and that is this. Why do we have attention? Why are we attentive beings? Why do birds not look at screens all day? <laughs> and we can what makes us different? It's a theme that we'll carry uh, over into Deuteronomy chapter 8 tonight when we look at, at that text. But this morning we're going to look at remembering and forgetting from three different texts in the New Testament. So we're going to look at these texts in the New Testament. First is Colossians chapter 3. Open in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3 if you have your Bible handy or your app. No irony in that. I'm pro, I'm pro smartphone. I am. Come tonight if you want to find out why I'm pro smartphone. Pro smartphone. Colossians chapter 3, here we find uh, an answer to this question, why are we attentive beings? And it's not about what human attention for is for. The answer is more about who is attention for. Our attention was made for someone. Here's Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, if then, if, if you have been raised with Christ, that's the precondition, okay? An inner man that has been resurrected from the dead. If that's happened to you, if you've been regenerated by the gospel, 
Then seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds, set your minds, focus your attention on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, past tense, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This new reality is massive, and it's massively conditional. This is not just something you decide to do one day, just resolve. I'm going to resolve to set my mind on Christ. Uh, like reading, like uh, 2023, I want to read 20 books. Yeah, that would be a great goal. Um, it's not just a resolution like that. As theologian John Webster said it, I think as well as it can be said, if we are to set our minds on Christ, quote, something has to happen to us, something has to be given us from outside to heal us, If we are to become listeners, then we have to be cleansed. Something in us has to be put to death. Something new has to be created. The capacity and desire to give attention to God. It's a miracle. A miracle must happen. Beholding Christ is for the desperate. For those few who are awakened to the nightmarish reality that this world captures hearts with futile, vain spectacles. And to be freed, something must die inside of me. Something must die inside of me. Oh, how vain will be a digital detox if your soul has not been given spiritual life, new spiritual eyes, to gaze at Jesus Christ and his beauty. And so we can read mountains of studies linking depression to smartphone overuse. We can talk about digital detoxes. We can limit devices in bedrooms and in classrooms. There's a lot that we can do, but fundamentally it comes down to this. Have you been given eyes to see the precious beauty of Jesus Christ? It's the most important question in the universe for you and for me. God must resurrect something inside of me to make us seers. And once he does, then we have this gift of seeing the beauty of Christ that must be stewarded. Stewarded. That's the point of our next text. Turn to the first four verses of the book of Hebrews, if you would. The book of Hebrews. We're just going to look at these first four verses to get a glimpse of the waterfall of of the glory of Jesus Christ and who he is. It is an amazing, rapid-fire description of who Christ is in all of his glory. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he, Christ, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is a glorious treasure trove of the glory of Jesus Christ. Here's just a bullet list of what we just read. Christ is the radiance of God's glory. Christ is radiantly beautiful as the eternal Son. 
Christ is radiantly beautiful as the creator and sustainer of this entire universe. Christ is radiantly beautiful as the crucified, resurrected, and ascended Lamb of God. Christ is radiantly beautiful as the king over all things. Christ is superior to the prophets of old, and he's superior and supreme to the angelic beings in heaven. Christ is radiant beauty personified. That's in in just four verses, the first four verses of Hebrews. All of that is in there. A majestic vision of the beauty of Christ. And I give you that bulleted list here because it means something super important that we're going to see by skipping to chapter 2, verse 1. There's a therefore. It's a very important therefore. Right? Always ask what the therefore is there for. Right? Chapter 2, verse 1, coming out of chapter 1, there's a therefore. There's a point that we have to take away from this. Therefore, the logical conclusion of Christ's radiant beauty and supremacy in chapter 1 follows into that first word. Therefore. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. This, I think, is the key text in the Bible for Christians living in the digital age, Hebrews 2, 1. I've I've memorized it. I would encourage you to memorize it as well. It's an urgent warning. Don't drift from what you have heard with your ears. Don't take it for granted what you've heard about Christ with your ears. This is a sailing metaphor. It tells us the importance of holding a boat's course fixed on a point out in the distance so that you're not carried away by the the stream, carried away by the current and drifting away. Stay fixed on that point. Christ is your point. To drift is to forget Drifting away from Christ. And this is not rhetoric. This is not hyperbole. This is not fiction. I mean, probably many of you in this room know people who have walked away from Christ over time. It wasn't an immediate thing. It was just like a gradual moving away from Christ, right? I've had, I've had really good pastors in my, lives, in my life, my family's life, that no longer walk with Christ. Ten years ago, I would have said, Favorite pastor in the world. He loves me, loves my family, serves my family. No longer walking with Christ. Slowly drifting away from Christ over time. So we must. We must. I'm not saying we must. The writer of Hebrews right there says we must. That's his phrase. We must. No suggestion, no hint. We must pay much closer attention to Christ because our hearts drift away from his beauty. And that's a tragedy. That's the point of Hebrews 2.1. It's about attentional neglect. Attentional neglect with Christ. And this drift is felt most clearly when our fidgety thumbs are always clicking and chasing after some new thrill in our media. That's where we default. What happens, we drift away from what's most precious and most important. We lose interest in Christ. Our interest in the Bible declines. We coldly mouth the words to Christ-centered hymns. We yawn through Christ-centered sermons. We spiritually snooze to the Lord's table. Those are all warning signs of spiritual drift in our lives. The writer of Hebrews wants us to wake up from that. It's very dangerous. So from one angle, the age of digital spectacles is all about money and popularity and attention, but the digital spectacles do something far more deadly to us. They teach us to 
ignore Christ. Now, I know at this point there arises a doubt in you, and it arises in me, and that question is yes, but we're supposed to fix our attention on Christ for how long? 24 Like, Are we angels? Do we just constantly worship? No, we're not angels. Like, we're, we're flesh and blood, we're dust. You know, we have to go to work. Like, we have to do, you know, we can't just worship Christ 24 7. And it raises this doubt in, in my own mind. It's, is he, is he really enough for this? Is, is he really sufficient for what I'm calling for, what the writer of Hebrews is calling for, what Colossians 3 is calling for? Is Christ really enough? Because I've got a smartphone and social media feeds, and they're very appealing. Is Christ enough? Can't we just give Christ like 1% of our time, right? We go to church on Sunday morning, we do our thing, we focus on Christ, and then we'll be back next week to focus on Christ. Isn't that enough, right? How can I know that Christ is actually able to satisfy my attention when I leave this place? Turn to the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark. We read this text this morning. And I want to read through it again and make some points. Chapter 9 of Mark. This is a transfiguration text. Uh, one of these incredible moments in time when Christ's radiant beauty breaks out in physical glory. Very rare. Very special. Spectacle for the eye. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 6. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Peter's just mumbling, like, uh, uh, let's, let's build something here. Let's, I don't know. It's amazing. Pay attention to this spectacle. Elijah and Moses, two key Old Testament figures, long dead, appear to casually chat with Christ. <laughs> They're just, like, hey, what's up? How's it going? Yeah, it's like small talking with Christ. And the disciples are like, what is going on here? And Christ is glowing as if his robe was bleached. In other words, he is actually a, he is a point of a source of light. He has no shadow. He is glowing like the sun, an incredible, radiant spectacle for the eye. And Peter loses his mind. He starts babbling about how he should make this transfiguration moment into like a, a, a permanent place to live. Like he wants to start a subdivision. Like this is cool. This is cool. We'll call the subdivision glory, right? And we'll sell properties. And it's just, let's make this place permanent, right? Let's live here. But get to what happens next in, in verses 7 and 8. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone but Jesus only. The spectacle ends in a flash. But Mark 9-7, in the context of this radiant Christ, the Father has to speak. The Father must speak up. 
and he speaks up to make an enduring point that we need today. He says, listen carefully to my son. Pay attention to him. Tune your ears to him. Why? Why listen so carefully to this Christ? Because he is the one I love. He is the one I treasure more than anyone or anything else on the planet, in the universe. This thunderous word from the heavens is spoken by the Father over his precious Son. It's spoken into the noise of the world's attention market. This is God's beloved Son. This is the one who is most majestically beautiful. This is the one who captures God's attention. This is the glorious one who has captured God's attention and delight from all eternity past, and he is still not bored with them. This majestic Christ is sufficient for you, and he's sufficient for me. And so we're back to Hebrews chapter 1. This transfigured Christ is the radiance of God's glory. Christ is radiantly beautiful as the Son of God, as the creator of all things, as the sustainer of all things, as the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Christ is supreme over the prophets of old. He's supreme over every angel in heaven. And now God himself affirms all of this verbally over his precious Son. Listen to him. In Colossians 3 and Hebrews 2 and now especially in Mark chapter 9, we have an answer to our question. What is human attention for? It's for Christ. Christ is worthy of our attention because he sufficiently satisfies God's eternal, unbroken delight. Wow. That changes everything about life in the smartphone age. He is why we have attention in the first place. Here are two life applications to close. Application number one, so what do we do with this? We get the green light to search hearts. So we get the green light to search hearts. First our own, and then those we love. As we'll see tonight, attention is all about the heart. It's all about what we want. So we can ask ourselves and others blunt questions to evaluate the impact of media on our own hearts. Here are eight diagnostic questions that you can first ask yourself and then post to those you love. These are questions I pose to my own heart. Question number one, how much of my media is for escape and what am I escaping? How much of my media is for escape and what am I escaping? Question two, does my screen time leave me more recharged or more depleted? Question three, is my media consumption enriching my time with Christ or eroding it? Question four, do I neglect my personal devotional life for my phone? You just grab it in the morning, right, instinctively. Number five, does my prayer life have life? Number six, is my communion with God boring or does it fuel my day? Number seven, how do Christ-centered sermons and songs affect me? And what does this say about how I protect my heart for Sunday worship? Right? Number eight, 
Are my digital desires serving my God-given duties or distracting me from them? Are my digital desires serving my God-given duties or distracting me from them? It comes down to purpose, right? It comes down to purpose. You and I, everyone in this room, I know this about you because it's true about me and everyone in this room. Here's what I know about all of us. You and I exist for two reasons. To treasure Christ above everything else and everyone else. And then out of that joy in him, to self-sacrifice ourselves and give our lives to others who are in need. That's the Christian life in a nutshell. It's very, very simple. Treasure Christ with your entire heart and out of the joy you have in him, serve and love. That's it. It's very simple. It's excruciatingly hard to live out, right? I mean, it's, it's lifetime warfare to actually live that out. But it's not complicated. And bad digital habits prohibit both both of those things. And so we fail to do what we were designed for, trapping us in an unhealthy life that has no purpose. So it's right to ask these questions of ourselves and of those that we love. Application number two, we preach Christ and him crucified. We preach Christ and him crucified. One final Bible text. If you still have your Bibles handy, go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. We're just going to look at this one verse and then close. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. The churches in Galatia were drifting away from the gospel. Right? They were drifting. They didn't have a fixed point in Christ. They were drifting away from the gospel. And there Paul warned them sternly, very sternly. He warned them of their drifting attention away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he writes this in chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has put a hex on you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. How can you drift away from him? You saw him on the cross. Now that's a very, very weird claim here. It's weird because it's highly unlikely anyone saw uh, Christ on the cross here in Galatia. Okay? This is 550 miles away from where Christ was crucified 20 years earlier. 20 years earlier, 550 miles away. That would be like me saying, remember what happened in Kansas City 20 years ago today in downtown? You remember that? And you'd all be like, I don't, I don't know what happened in Kansas City 20 years ago to the day. That's what Paul's saying to the Galatians. He's saying, before your very eyes, Christ was crucified. And they're like, what? No, he wasn't. So what on earth does Paul mean when he says to these churches, you all saw Christ publicly portrayed as crucified, a spectacle as though it was plastered on a city billboard? It's literally the language he's using. Like Christ was crucified as, as right before your eyes, like a city billboard you see driving down the street. It's just right there in your face. Paul is saying this. Paul is saying that his own preaching of the cross to these Galatian churches was so clear and so vibrant that it was as if the spectacle of the crucifixion was portrayed in Galatia as forcefully as if it had actually happened there. That's what preaching Christ represents in a city, in any city. Paul preached Christ in Galatia, and he was bringing the public spectacle of Christ back into focus for those cities. It was a rerun of the cross. That means we can preach Christ in such a way that the death of Christ 2,000 years ago, 7,200 miles away from us, 
can be reprojected back before the view of Midlothian, Texas today. Gospel preaching is a perpetual rerun of the spectacle of the cross, crossing time and space. That spectacular cross is relevant for every single city today. Don't drift away from it. Brothers and sisters, don't drift away from that cross. The greatest spectacle the world has ever beheld. In your church meetings, in the Lord's table, in your singing, in your fellowship, in your friendships, keep bringing the spectacle of Christ crucified back to the center where it belongs. So Christians are a pro-spectacle. Pro-spectacle. We give our entire lives to re-preach this great spectacle. If Christ is an infinite object big enough to satisfy God's own attention, he is surely enough to satisfy the vast attention appetites that we have. He is our spectacle. A spectacle for faith. A spectacle in the gospel. A spectacle for the year. Not quite yet for the eye. This is the spectacle the world most needs from us. Reading all the studies on smartphone dangers won't save me. Digital minimalism will not save me. A new life hack app will not save me. A digital detox is not going to save me. Throwing my smartphone into a lake, sometimes I'm tempted to do it. It's not going to save me. Sledgehammering the Xbox, not going not to save you. Tossing a television in the garbage, not going to save you. Any of those drastic a- actions may be helpful for you. But my ultimate hope is in a greater spectacle, the most dazzling spectacle of the universe, Jesus Christ in him crucified. Only he can satisfy our attention now as a spectacle for the year, and one day he will satisfy our attention forever, for all of eternity as a transfigured spectacle for our sight forever. Cannot wait for that day. Amen, church? Father, do this miracle in us. We forget. We forget so easily. We live, in, we live inside a vanity fair of digital amusements. We need you to do work inside of us. We need you to kill that desire inside of us for what is lurid, for what is vain, so that we can have an appetite for you. Lord, open our eyes. And for anyone here this morning who's just feeling condemned, feeling guilt, yep, did that again, said, told God I wasn't going to do that again, did it again, did it again. Got to pray for those souls here this morning that they would not run away from the spectacle, but run towards it. That's our only hope of forgiveness is in Christ, your beautiful, awesome son. So as your spirit works and brings to mind the, 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 the wrongs we've done this week, Lord, we're not running away from the spectacle. We're running towards him. He's our only hope in this digital age. Thank you for his blood. Thank you for his forgiveness and the hope that we have for eternal life. In Christ's name we pray.